Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Yeah, you know Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Hello and welcome again to Down with D&D. I am Sean Merwin and I am here with our co-host, the man of the hour, the tower of proverbial power, Teos Abadia. Woo! Uh, he I'm is. Always, oh. I'm always afraid I'll blow the levels when I do that. <laughs> but um, uh, hello, my friend Sean. Hello, world. How is everyone doing today? We are ready to talk D&D on this cool November day, well, at least cool where I am, probably if you're like in Australia, it's, it's 90 degrees, but we'll just say it's cool in, in every sense of that word. And we will get started with some news. If you are listening on the day this drops, Tasha's Cauldron of Everything should be out by now. And reviews have already started to come out. So from some pre-reviewers, uh, including our friend, Newbie DM. And what did he have to say, Teos? Yeah, he seemed to like it. Um, he reviewed three things, Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, and uh, there's a lot of lore in there. It very much feels like a Xanathar-style book, as we've seen from all those previews. Um, so he showed off some neat pictures, some cool lore, like the Demonomicon, I can say it, of Igwilf. Um, he also gave a Twitter review of the new exploration DM screen that we covered mm-hmm. a while, a few episodes back. And what's really interesting is it has a ton of these exploration tables that you'd need for crossing the wilderness, but does not actually pull together the rules for how to use those tables. Mm. And since those rules are scattered across the player's handbook and DM's guide, and I would argue Tomb of Annihilation, mm-hmm. it's kind of like, you know, you kind of need a crib sheet in addition to your DM screen, which was a thing that I, I was kind of like, hmm, that was an opportunity they could have had there for like a, here's your list of one, two, three, four, what to do. Yeah. He also showed off the great Del Moody card game that we talked about. Okay. Before. Yeah. Excellent. So if you're not following newbie DM on Twitter, you can do that to get all of his great takes and great reviews. And, and if you know, Enrique, in Spanish? Oh. yeah, Enrique could have covered in Spanish, but he chickened out. Yeah. Uh, Mario Ortegon did the work for him. Uh, he's known on Twitter as El Warius and also on Twitch. His, his, it's E-L-W-A-R-I-U-S. And Mario covered uh, these products in Spanish. Um, so that's awesome. Check that out. Twitch. Okay. There was a big drop of not just Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, but also Sage Advice and Errata that had a few people talking about uh, rules in general. <laughs> and by talking, I mean complaining, grumbling. Yeah. Uh, but that seems to be the way things work. If you find any exploit in the game and you take advantage of that exploit, you cannot be surprised when the errata comes out or when Sage Advice comes out that takes that exploit and makes it no longer an exploit. So... Sage Advice version 2.6 uh, talked about Divine, divine Smite. Uh, yeah, that one's kind of interesting, right? Because it's, so the, the basic thing is that you cannot use Divine Smite as a paladin when you hit with an unarmed strike. Okay. And then it goes and says that it's totally fine rules-wise, balance-wise, 
if you want to rule otherwise as a DM. So there's some grumblings and, and, and from both players and, and designers as well. Sort of like, well, why are you bothering with this? Like, why did you spend your time on this delineation right. when you're, you, you know, it's not a balance issue. It's not something that you're just sort of semantically addressing this, right? Right. I mean, I, unless you're a monk paladin, I'm not sure what, what you're doing smiting yeah. arm strike. I think that's the idea is you're a monk paladin and technically you can't divine smite. And it's like, well, you know, I don't know. Okay, yeah. but we but now we know. Well, I mean, divine smite's powerful enough as it is. Uh, you don't need any any cheese on top of that uh, big bit of fromage. Well, what I would say is, technically, you could build a, a monk that you know is not overpowered, where divine smite can sort of help you every right. now and then bring a little more right. oomph to it. Sure. But you know, then your DM's going to by default say no unless you convince them otherwise. And, there there and, aren't any monk paladin crazy builds that I've seen. So true. You know, it's not a balance thing. Right, right. Uh, by by taking levels of monk, you are diluting the number of smites you can do a day as a paladin, basically. <laughs> right. Uh, all right. So, uh, and what's this animate dead uh, ruling? Yeah. So this this is another one that was clarified a while back, and for some reason, there's this desire to really, really clarify it. Uh, <laughs> it's more semantics. Which before it said casting animate dead. Animate dead. The question was sort of like, can I have, can I kill a zombie, then cast animate dead and raise it? And the answer was no, because that is a, uh, it's not the corpse of a humanoid. It's, it's the remains of an undead. So it's type is wrong. It's not humanoid type. So you can't do it. Yeah. But if it's a pile of bones, it works and becomes a skeleton. So this is the clarification. So I guess if you want to chop up that zombie or skeleton into a bunch of remnants, then it will become a skeleton and it works just fine. And I, you know, yeah. why did we need any of this conversation? I'm not sure, but we've yeah. had it and here we are. Yeah, it's, I mean, maybe there is a reason and we're just not keen enough to, uh, to ferret maybe. out what that might be. And then there so was, was yeah. 2.5 to 2.6 was really those things. Okay. <laughs> and then there was errata for the Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide which have two very uh, popular cantrips, Booming Blade and Green Flame Blade, along with Lightning Lore and Sword Burst. Um, and they've been adjusted to change the range from what was listed to self, which uh, is a distinction that then leads to a lot of different small but significant changes. Yeah, I think if you know if you're a designer, it's worth knowing that there's this new terminology, right? Self and then X foot radius in the parentheses. Uh, so it's worth you know acquainting yourself with that. If, if you create powers or features, that's now a thing that that you can think of using. Um, it on one hand, these spells are now clear. They're a little you know. I think the first time anybody reads booming blade, booming blade or green flame blade, it's kind of confusing as to exactly what's happening. So there, there's a, some better clarity here, but it seems the purpose of the change is to pause a number of interactions or, or prevent a number of interactions that were previously working with it, right? Mm -hmm. Such as metamagic, where if you have a single target, then you can twin that spell and cast it on two different people or distance it uh, and, and make the range further. So now since the spell is being cast on yourself, you can no longer twin or distance those spells, mm -hmm. which makes sense, I 
think. Uh, and uh, the Warcaster feat, where you can use a reaction to uh, use your cantrip as an opportunity attack, will uh, work for both of them. But with Green Flame Blade, you can't attack a second creature with that uh, cantrip as an opportunity attack. Yeah, and before it sort of felt like, based on the wording, you had to attack a second creature. And now it's very clear that you can choose to attack a second yeah. creature, including so that the opportunity attack will work or caster will work. Yep. All right. Uh, what about the smell, <laughs> smell sniper? <laughs> I want that, Pete. Uh, spell sniper no longer works with the blade spells. It used to allow you to use a reach weapon um, so that you could kind of increase the distance of your range, but now that the, it's really self, you can't do that. So a spell sniper does not work. You have to use a normal weapon, not a reach weapon. Yep. And similarly, the shadow blade spell, this required a, um, a, a material, now the, the spells booming blade and green flame blade require a material component, mm -hmm. which is a weapon worth a silver piece or more. Okay. That means the shadow blade, because it just creates it out of shadow and has no actual worth, will not work with it. Okay. So you can't stack the damage of shadow blade on top of uh, your, your other spells. This is something that arcane trickster rogues and others would use. Um, probably similarly, we would say that the soul knife's psychic blades, if you're using that on Earth Arcana, that would not work because it also has no value. But Warlock Pact of the Blade, which has monetary value because it says so in the description, that would still work. Okay. Whew. Oh, yeah, that's uh, and, and that was just a very quick skim of those yeah. issues. So uh, if you want to see everything in detail, uh, there is a blog by ThinkDM. If you go to thinkdm.org, you can see all of this uh, detailed in in a little deeper dive. Yeah, and he loves math. He, he really loves to break apart how things work and to examine how errata change. So it's a great blog to look at when these kinds of changes come across. Mm -hmm. He's probably broken it down for you. And while errata was being thrown around, what the heck, let's uh, look at Eberron rising from the last war, errata. Yeah, a lot of this seems to be motivated by Tasha's because Tasha's uh, adds the artificer sort of into the core of the game instead of being in the Eberron book. Um, and there's, there's a lot there, are many different fixes and adjustments worth looking at to see whether they impact your game. Um, a changeling cannot choose charisma as its other ability score increase. Mm -hmm. The Warforged integrated protection no longer incorporates shields. Half-Elf's magical detection feature uses wisdom, not int. And then they have a bunch of changes to the artificer. Uh, do you want me to review these? Sure, because I want to know, because I have an artificer in one yeah. of my games. <laughs> so they, um, they changed the stat blocks for both the Steel Defender and the Homunculus, which are two of the, depending on the options, which, which type of artificer you are, which subclass you will then gain these. Um, and I like this design a lot. They have scaled now things like hit points, saves, attacks, and other features of the artificer are scaled based on your proficiency bonus. Okay. And this is a pretty neat change um, versus being, say, your ability score um, or being a static value it's, or even a tier. Because what it means is if you're multi-classing, you, you would be worse at this, right? You're, you're still defender or homunculus would be worse. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a bit of a control on multi-classing. 
but it's also a very elegant system. That's a number that's on your character sheet, the proficiency bonus. So I like it. I, I, I wish that Druid Wild Shaping kind of was based on a stat block that modified based on proficiency uh, bonus. So I think we'll see more and more proficiency bonus being used. Yeah. Um, but that's important to know if you use these subclasses, those creatures have changed significantly companions. What I found completely amazing <laughs> is they didn't tone down the Eldritch Cannon. Yeah. Because that thing yeah. at low levels. So I have an artificer in my uh, Acquisitions Incorporated campaign. And the first thing I noticed was, wow, this Eldritch Cannon giving these temporary hit points every round. Uh Boy, that's really powerful. So I discussed it with the player, and he was like, "Well, you know, at high levels, it gives you the exact same number of, yeah. of hit points, so it's not going to be that powerful at higher levels." But I'm like, "Yeah, but at low levels, I'm throwing C the CR of the encounters that I'm throwing at them are much higher than they normally would be, and it's not even affecting it uh, them at all." Yeah, there are a few times that I would say the words "horrible design." Mm -hmm. This is one where I would like. Yeah. The Eldritch Cannon is really quite bad design. And I'm not trying to, I mean, we all make mistakes. I'm not being, right. you know, I'm not trying to <laughs> lambast someone, but this came out badly, you know, yeah. like in retrospect, I think we should look at the Eldritch Cannon. It's just really a bad idea. Um, those temporary hit points, and for folks who don't know it, well, the, the thing is it has a radius, mm -hmm. but you can use it outside of combat. So you can start every combat with temporary hit points that really aren't that different than if you took that uh, inspired leader feat. Right. So it's almost like a free feat. Yep. Uh, in fact, I play in a campaign with an artifice that has this and I took inspired leader and I never get to use it because of this thing. Right. <laughs> right? Because since you can use it every round, yeah. you just assume that, well, I'm going to keep rolling until I get the highest number possible. Exactly. So yes. you go into every combat yeah. situation with, at the highest number, which is usually like 11, 10, 11, yeah. 12 in that area. Um, and at low levels, that's an unbelievable cushion of hit points, right? It is huge. Right. And then it's not just that you came into the combat with the, that temporary shield, you're then regenerating it. And if you try to tone it down by like saying, well, is he within 10 feet or is she within yeah. 10 feet? You are now paralyzing gameplay every round to figure out who does or doesn't get this buff. Right. Oh, I dislike the Eldritch Cannon. And it's a minor action. So every round, the Artificer really doesn't lose much. Yeah. Saying, okay, I'll just shoot off that cannon again. Oh, you were, you know, we, you, first level, you had 10 hit points to start. You had 21 hit points uh, going in. Oh, you, you lost seven of your temporary hit points. Well, let me just shoot it off again. Oh, I rolled well. Now you're back up. So it's, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's a, yeah. And then even if we don't choose the temporary hit point option, the attack options are pretty powerful, mm -hmm. um, like kind of surprisingly powerful. And there's a lot of ambiguity as to exactly what space this thing occupies, how it can be carried around, how it can be attacked or not. And all of which just facilitates yep. what I'd call ruinous play. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm really sad that of all the things that got errata in here, they didn't touch the Eldritch Cannon because that I think that really needs some filing down. Yep. When I got my copy of Tasha's, seeing that you know it was going to have the Artificer in it, that was the first thing I looked at. <laughs> what did they do with the Eldritch Cannon for the yeah. Artificer? And it nothing. was nothing. And I, I, I may have said a word that I'm not going to say on the air. Yeah. Here. 
and this was the time, right? This is this is yep. the moment. That reprint would have been just beautiful. We all could have dealt with the fact that the Evron book was a little bit out of whack, but this would have fixed it instead. And now, you know, uh, yeah. what do you do? Yep. Well, speaking of Eberron, uh, Keith Baker has a new product up on the DMs Guild that shot immediately to the number one bestseller on the thing, not surprisingly, pushing out his former number one product down to number two. Uh, Man, so, I feel bad for Keith, yeah. you know. <laughs> Why do you feel bad for Keith? Well, that he had to go down a spot. Oh, that, that his yeah, one product yeah. had to go down because the other yeah. one became a number yeah. one bestseller. I mean, I feel good for him for the one that is at yes. number one. But... Okay, that's good. Well, Eberron Confidential is the name of that product, and it is only four ninety five on the DMs Guild. It is a uh, product that has fifty four character secrets plus tips on how to use them. Um, and what this does is it gives you hooks for the DM to explore uh, mechanical benefits for the characters, like bonus proficiencies, as well as uh, role playing potential that, like you have not seen in many products. Um, this reminds me a bit of the secrets part of um, Rhyme of the Frost Maiden, but really done well. Yeah. Yeah. These are cool. They're, they have a real sort of DM's eye for how they're put together so that they're evocative for both player and DM. Yep. And, and the ideas on how to use them are really well done. Yeah, that's equally important, how to use them, not just here Here they are. So mm-hmm. uh, that is available for you on the DM's Guild presently. And uh, speaking of DMs Guild, the last stand at Copper Canyon is an Oracle of War salvage mission by Stacy Allen, who does uh, layout for the Oracle of War adventures, and and worked on Rhyme of the Frost Maiden as and, a author. That's true. And um, incredible designer, incredible artist, layout person, all around. Uh, she she's an entire team all by herself. Yeah. Uh, her husband's and, a slacker, though. Yeah, his, her husband doesn't doesn't do much. But anyway, uh, so this salvage mission is available, like all salvage missions, on the DMs Guild for the Oracle. I'm sorry, of- I just have to stop and laugh for the people who may not know that she's married to Will Doyle. Yeah. Uh, it's important to say. We love Will. We yep. love Stacey. I was just going to keep that a secret. <laughs> I know you were. <laughs> so sinister forces hunt for salvagers, dragging captives to their scrapyard lair. But Copper Canyon hums with strange and unpredictable magic. Can you defeat the evil which festers at its heart and escape its rusty confines unscathed? So awesome. you know, if, if you are doing salvage missions, uh, check that one out, because as you will see by the even just by the cover, uh, it is an incredibly well done adventure. Yeah, I'm excited to get this. It's on my wish list. And as soon as I get a few more things, I'll pick them all up. And, yeah. there you go. Another DMs Guild release recently is Dunwood by Joe Rosso. Um, Teos and I met Joe at Winter Fantasy last year. Um, I've met him at some other cons and he released a, a, this source book on the Dunwood region for the Forgotten Realms, one of my favorite regions of the realms. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there is nine adventures, encounter tables, a sort of gazetteer of the surrounding lands, art, maps, layout, so much more on this. It's Dunwood. Yeah, I have this. It's beautiful. I really, really like this. This is really well worth the price. Uh, and Joe's a wonderful guy, super creative, likes employing good people, wants to increasingly create products. So this is a great one to support. Yep. Check out Dunwood. We have a new blog 
post up by DM David. This one I particularly enjoyed. Um, he gives a bunch of sort of one trick builds, builds where you could have a super high AC or move at an incredible distance in, in a round or you know, you could do a Nova attack where you just use all your resources on that one attack. And so he describes sort of how to do it, but he also asks this very important question. Should you do this? Right. And for me, the answer is often no. What? No, no, you shouldn't. <laughs> um, not if you want everyone at the table to have fun. And, and it's, it's different. It's like being able to move really fast. That, that's cool because you can do yeah. cool things with that. No one is saying, oh, you just ruined my game because you can move 120 feet in a round. Right. Or, you know, healing. Healing is, is a thing that is often very important. And as long as it's not ridiculous, being able to take a character or multiple characters and take them from single digit hit points up, that's good. That's, that's working as a team. Uh, some of them get a little ridiculous, though, mm. um, like the AC one. Oh, God. The AC that. one is, is the worst for me because it's no fun for you as the DM because all it's doing is making you avoid hitting this this character. And I, what I usually do when I have a character like this is I'll have the monsters attack them once. And when I see how ridiculously high, they just go attack someone else. And unless they're a sticky character, unless they have something that attacking someone else has a penalty, all it's doing is sort of bragging rights. Yeah. Uh, it seems, which just, it's not fun for anyone else at the table, really. Um, yeah, I, I have a number of friends who use high AC builds, and it saddens me when the DM at a convention will say, you know, oh, all right, I hit you with that shield. Yeah, they just cast shield and no, it didn't hit either. You know, and it's right. just like only a twenty will hit this thing, right? And it's right. Just, oh, it's so sad for the DM. I feel so yeah. bad. And the thing is, like, it wouldn't have mattered if if they if they had an AC five points lower. Like everybody would be fine. There's no reason for all these extra AC points. It's just, right. yeah, uh, it, it's it's a it's just a numbers game. It's just to see how high you can get a number. Um, and in a in a game that's supposed to be both narrative and uh, you know game. It, it just doesn't, it doesn't help the narrative side at all. And social, right? I mean, right. And social includes the dungeon master. So, yep. yeah. 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 It was a very fun post to read. Yeah, sure. it, it, it was, it was, a, and it, it, you know, it's very interesting, especially for people who are into rules and how the rules interact. Uh, just describing how to get these high numbers was, was interesting. Uh, Gary Khan has already announced that it's 2021 convention will be ethereal. Uh, so no in-person Gary Khan at March 25th through 28th, but they will have an online uh, convention as most conventions have in the last year or so, and will continue for the foreseeable future. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. yeah. I, was, I think I was going to say something dark about hopefully prior to our lives extending, but <laughs> I'm not going to get that dark on this show. Well, I think, I think <laughs> we are a beacon of light amongst the dark. <laughs> Uh, even even saying that uh, i say that to my kids all the time yeah yeah and last but not least teos you wanted to talk about the reddit thread on the cost of rpg books in other countries yeah albert soup uh fun twitch show 
shared this Reddit post and uh, someone in Bosnia Herzegovina had said, hey, I live in a country in which this D&D book costs one fifth of the average monthly salary. Today, my wife surprised me. She was secretly saving up for the past six months. And it led to a couple of things. One is some good discussion and awareness of just how different uh, the prices are relative to the dollar in other countries mm-hmm. and, and to the dollar cost of our books in, in the country of the US. Um, and also how nice some gamers are because a number of people began sending books to people for whom the situation was this way. Right. Uh, which was very nice to see gamers stepping forward and giving other people, sending them books um, and absorbing those costs. But it's something that I think it's important to highlight as an issue, because as we see RPG companies, whether it's D&D or any others, try to go global, mm-hmm. uh, that works really well in some places like Europe and Asia. Mm-hmm. It does not work well in parts of Asia, in almost all of South America and a number of other countries because of the very different cost of things. And I had someone reach out to me recently and say, you know, hey, I really, you know, you talk about Shadow of the Demon Lord. I really want to get it. How do I get it at an affordable rate? I'm in Brazil. And there wasn't a great answer, right? That there's a distributor that can get some things, but not all things. And, and so unless a distributor has a way to take, to get that book, but reprice it at the local price level, mm-hmm it won't work, right? You can't just say, hey, $60 book, that is what you have to save six months up to, to buy, right? It's just, it doesn't really work as a wide growth strategy. So I think it's something we'll have to tackle over time for yeah. for all RPGs. Yep, it's true. If, if it is going to become a, wor- a truly worldwide phenomenon, it needs to be able to get to the world uh, in a way that is reasonable, affordable, and you, you would hope that PDFs would help with that, uh, but still, there there is a discrepancy that's hard to overcome. Yeah, and in fact, the conversation I had with the nice person in Brazil, you know, they were actually looking for the PDF because the PDF was itself mm-hmm. superbly expensive compared right. to the local sure. cost. And I've had the same problem. I've talked about this before, where I'd like to get Spanish copies of all the books. The only distributor is in Spain. And the price in euros, even to the U.S. is high. And the cost of shipping is more than the cost of the book. And that means it costs about, you know, $110 to get a player's handbook in the U.S. in Spanish. Now, when you say, when you translate that $110 to the same cost applies to somebody in Central America and South America, Mm -hmm. nobody can afford physical copies or almost nobody can afford physical copies of those books because they're coming from Spain. So that would be our new segment, and we are about to move on to our main topic, which is our continuing dive into Icewind Dale, Rime of the Frost Maiden. We have finally trekked through the 10 towns, all 10 of them, and made it to chapter two, where we are going to look at the quests, the sandbox style quests that are set up in chapter two. Oh, I thought we were talking about avalanches. (laughs) <laughs> we we are going to go through Teos's math uh, because of the errata. The, yeah, yeah, do the errata. That's what they should do. Just just personally to drive me crazy. Yep. Errata avalanches. He now needs blizzards. to uh, do his yeah <laughs> geo geometric uh, 
yeah. look at avalanches. All right. So chapter two is organized around these quest locations spread around Icewind Dale. Um, they tend to have self-contained plots, not necessarily tied to any of the greater threats of the Everlasting Rhyme, uh, the Durgar, or any of those other sort of main storylines that run through uh, this adventure. So did you have any thoughts overall on chapter two to, to get things started? As a reader, when I, when I remember what it was like to start reading this, this was a surprise because chapter one was so sandboxing. Mm-hmm. I thought chapter two, here's where we're going to get into the rhyme. Yep. And that is not the case. So if you're a DM, you know, it, it pays to, to set the expectations uh, from the beginning or to do, you know, like we talked about in the last episode, if you, if you change things around, so you have a stronger narrative, you will want to again find ways to do that here. And in the last episode, we talked about some ways that you could bring a stronger narrative that extends into chapter two. Um, you'll you'll want to do that because this is kind of like chapter one, except instead of going from town to town, you're going to these other locations. Um, but it can feel like just sort of more of the same, I think. Yeah. yeah Even though it, the locations themselves are great. I, I was exactly the same way. I finished chapter one and I thought, okay, that's a cool level one to three, you know, get up to level four with the sort of build your own plot thing. And here, chapter two, let's go, let's get into the, you know, the meat of the adventure. And if anything, it was more sandboxy than, than chapter one, which was hard to do uh, because that was pretty darn sandboxy. So uh, it starts as, as you like to see, at least I like to see, it starts with a quick overview and then it tells you how to run the chapter. And th- this is helpful uh, especially in this sort of sandbox uh, method of adventure design, you want to give the DM uh, some tips for how to run it best. And the first thing that it gives you is character advancement. Like it did previously, it told you, you know, after the first little quest, go up to chapter or go up to uh, level two and then after two or more then go up again, this sort of does the same thing. It gives you three bullet points. Now see if, see, if, see what's interesting about this. In this chapter, you decide how quickly to advance the characters. Treat the following as recommendations. One, the characters gain a level after spending two or three game sessions exploring Icewind Dale. Okay. Two, second bullet point. The characters gain a level for neutralizing the threats in two or three of the dangerous locations described in the chapter. And third bullet point, the characters gain a level if they accomplish an extraordinary feat, such as ending the feud between the Goliath clans or surviving a close encounter with Arviatoris, the white worm. And I'm thinking, wait, if you do all of these things, (laughs) you're basically going to level after one <laughs> one after side two, quest. Right, two after, locations you could level everything yeah right because it each each of the threats is going to maybe take a game session or two and then with while you're doing those threats you may accomplish the extraordinary feat so i right. i think what this is saying is sort of choose one of these methods and go with that 
unless it's taking too long and then go with one of the other ones. But if you do all of those things, you're going to be gaining levels probably too quickly. Uh, so, so just keep that in mind. And it also, there is this sort of inherent bias of what a game session is that we need to get away from, especially in the a time where we're playing online or playing by mail or playing differently than <laughs> we're, we have been able to, because for, for me, a game session might be 45 minutes and for you, a game session might be eight hours. So, right. um, when you use a term like game session, you need to make it clear what that means. Yeah. Four hour sessions or something. You know, that's your expectation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so after this, uh, the characters should reach seventh level and then they can move on, but move on to what <laughs> one it might ask. Yeah. And, it, and that's where, when you're, that was another point of con- confusion when I first, read this it says once the characters reach level seventh level they should no longer gain levels by exploring locations or surviving random encounters in this chapter instead direct them to the locations described in chapters five through seven Mm -hmm. which makes me go what happened to chapters three and four right we're chapter two (laughs) so you have to read chapter three to four to sort of find out what's coming because it won't tell you here Right. And and it's probably worth saying that chapter three to four is where actually the adventure takes off with a more linear plot, though it isn't super obvious. And, and let's just go ahead and say chapter three is the Dwergar fortress called Sunlight. Mm-hmm. Chapter four is a dragon attacking the Ten Towns. Right. And these are sequential. So once three comes up, four is very close on its heels and in fact presents you with a choice of whether to finish off three or go to four. Um, and then four, chapter four, will actually lead you to fifth. And you have to be seventh level when that happens. So it, it is one of those things you have to kind of balance as a DM. You have to keep in your mind, sort of in a corner of your brain, that whenever I engage three, then I'm on to my more linear plot. Right. But I shouldn't do that until I'm seventh level. And yet there are some things that could take you to chapter three in the Dwergar Fortress. You have to be careful with those and not trigger that too early because then it all gets triggered. Right. Yeah, it, it is definitely, there are some disconnects between what I think the adventure assumes, but then what the adventure demands later. Yeah. Um, so you, you, we definitely have to be, be aware of those, stay aware of those. Yeah, and that's where I would keep it, you know, whenever the, you sort of want to not go to the Dwergar Fortress earlier than sixth level. Mm-hmm. Uh, but probably seventh. And so you want to start throwing hints around the sixth level so that it'll happen correctly. Right. Um, and, you know, maybe let's talk about what, what, so coming back to chapter two, where we are, there are 13 sort of quests or locations. Mm-hmm. And you are given two methods by which to sort of reach them. Mm-hmm. One of them is a system called Tall Tales and Ten Towns. Uh, and the other is that you can be moving across the landscape and encounter them, mm-hmm. which is strange given how big and open it is. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, like, I, like the, I like the way that it presents. You can either get people into, get your characters into the quest as rumors, or you can get them in as sort of a more, 
plot hook in depth sort of thing. Uh, you just have to be careful about the player type that you have. Some players, when they hear a rumor, like I'm just going to pick one randomly. Frost Giants ruled this land long ago. Their leader, the Jarls, would meet atop a hill to the west to settle disputes. Their thrones still rest on that hill. Now that leads them that some players are going to hear that and go, okay, let's go to that hill. And they won't think twice about it. And in 10 seconds, you are now on that hill. Some are going to say, well, what does the hill look like? What did the thrones look like? What did the frost dance do? All of those things are going to come up. And then you are going to now have to either a read ahead and be able to answer those questions or B just say, nobody knows. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. And and I think some of these, if some of the players that I run, I think would hear these and go, okay, great. What else can you tell me about? Yeah. You know, like, yeah, you've got some random thing about goblin scavengers moving around wagons. What am I going to go hunt them? No. So what, you know, but no, actually you're supposed to, you know, and I, I don't think these are often, uh, evocative enough and maybe that's not the right way to say it but it, it 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 doesn't directly lead characters to going on and it's interesting because we talked about last time at how uh, chris perkins had said some of the inspiration for how they designed this was how well the quest board worked mm-hmm. in the uh, essentials box set but that quest board that was the beauty of it is the quest board has this you know an npc that sort of doesn't want to see you just chucks these small notes and you know that's all you're getting Right. But th- that information that's on those quests is really all you need yeah. to go. And you know that this is the me- mechanism. It's a very beautiful, efficient and elegant thing that you're going to this quest board. You're finding what you need to know to go off and do that right. here. This is one of many things that might be said in an evening in a tavern or as you're shopping in town. And that gives it less weight and less clarity. And as you said, many players will then say, tell me about this hill. Oh, hold on. Yeah. <laughs> I got a page through the book. And what yeah, should I, you know? What should you not? This I, I don't like the, the the level of meat here. Right. Especially since these each of these quests are are fairly meaty in and of themselves or can be. Um, and so you this is just one more reason why you as the DM may want to read through ahead of time and decide the path or decide one of a restricted number of paths that you are going to put in front of the characters. So you know what's going on. So it's not just a random roll of the die of the dice gives you this rumor, which then gives you a bunch of questions that the characters are now going to have to wait for you to read through that to, to answer those questions. Yeah. And I like, you know, so we should say there are these quests um that you can directly give your characters and i think those work those are obviously very that that truly is you know some npc saying to you hey Mm -hmm. perform this service for me um sometimes i'll pay you or there's a threat you know will you be heroes and do this and those work well at doing that but but it's sort of an interesting intersection with these tall tales And, and what i wonder as a dm if you're willing to put in the work you can actually think through, and, and this is almost what this, I think there's one or two approaches, right? One is the sandbox style. Mm-hmm. You shout out some rumors, 
you see if they bite. If not, you randomly choose a quest, throw it at them, and off they go. And they just sit and you just see where that all ends up. And when they're getting to seventh level, you go to the next chapter. Yeah. Um, I think if you want to try to create a better narrative, you're then forced to go through all these and sort of think through which ones are you going to pick and why. And if they happen to be in similar locations on the map, you can look at this big map and say, well, if I'm going to take them to, you know, the cave of the berserkers, uh, they might pass the lost spire on the way there and they're near where the Goliaths live. So that can be a chain of things that I do. And maybe I add, uh, some rumors about that so that while they're at the Cave of the Berserkers, they think, well, I'll also go check out where the Goliaths live, right? But it, it, it requires, it almost puts that work on you yeah. rather than an elegantly handling it itself. Yep. So there are, as Teo said, several quests. Uh, one, two, 13. three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. 10, 11. I only see 12. Oh, maybe I miscounted. Yeah. Well, it's it's strange because there are 11 rumors but I, according to this, there are 12 quests. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think the last rumor handles two, two of the quests. Um, but, you know, it's, it's sort of, it's presented in a strange way because first you get this table of rumors and the, you know, each rumor is maybe three or four sentences at most. Then they give the same thing, but in quest form where it's two or three paragraphs um, describing who gives the quest, um, what they say about the quest, um, what they will pay, you know, etc. And and then after that, they don't even give you the the full quest yet. Now they give you random wilderness encounters, and and how to run them. And we should and, also say these quests and tall tales do not cover all the locations. Sure. There are a few locations that are unlocked only while you either meet certain monsters or go to other locations, then it, you know, points you to those. Right. So, so amidst this sort of chaotic structure of how do we even get to these quests and where are they in the book before you get to the final version here, let's have some random wilderness encounters. Uh, and here, and so th- for me, that was one, one randomness too far. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I will admit that I am a very structured person. I like linear adventures. I like sculpted experiences as both a DM and a player. Um, that's my preference. So this, this wilderness encounter section was, was one step too far for me uh, because it tells you roll a D8 for when it happens. Uh, okay, well, what if I'm not traveling, you know, at night, or what if I decide to travel at night, but rest during the day? Uh, You know, it was just this sort of uh, strange way to present for me, a strange way to present these. For me, it was okay, because they do say, you can choose when to have it show up, right? They do tell you that and one one or two per game session, the game session again, but you know, right have them show up every now and then say, I'm okay with this. But if you, if you want to roll, then, Hey, every 24 hours, roll a D eight. And then you do this table where it says when the encounter happens uh, and it can be nothing or two of them. Um, I, you know, to me, I I would add a little 
different uh, guidance here in that in general, the point of random encounters is to do a variety of things. And, and, and I think those are important. You know, we talked about this in the exploration episodes we did, but you want to paint the picture of the world, make the world seem more complex, make travel seem challenging. The, there, there should be a purpose to wilderness encounters in many ways. And, and so it's not just about its periodicity, right? It's mm-hmm. more on that. Yeah, it, it just, it seems odd to me too that that you would do sort of a random encounter for chapter one then a different random <laughs> encounter for chapter two and i'm just waiting to see if there's random encounters <laughs> worked into you know the rest of of the the book if i if i do have random encounters presented to me in an adventure i just want it at the beginning or at the end um and then you know tell me for the whole book i don't need individual chapters or individual sections saying okay here are the random encounters for this thing and again i i completely admit that i am not a fan of random you know wilderness sort of encounters i'm not either actually i'm okay with having different tables and the reason for that is that um i do like it when so two things one is when they scale by level Mm -hmm. so i don't need four goblins to be a random encounter when i'm in a later chapter but in Mm -hmm. an early chapter that's great Mm -hmm. um and, and that it can feel a little more like it's suited to the environment. And I'll tell you what I really like about these wilderness encounters is this two die system. Yep. Yep. That's very clever. This is really cool. Um, Merrick Blackman wrote a blog post where he talked about the construction of random encounter tables. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was right around the time I was reading about this. And, and, uh, and this is, you know, right in that kind of concept of like build into your table what the world should be like. And this uses two dice. You roll 2d20 of different colors when you're rolling on the random uh, wilderness encounter table. The first d20 is the encounter die that tells you uh, what it is. And the the second is the blizzard die. Mm -hmm. So the encounter die, you know, if I roll a 15, okay, well that's uh, Chewinga. And it tells me the difficulty, which I also appreciate. So it's Mm -hmm. easy. Then I look at my other D20, and if that number was higher than the encounter die roll, so higher than 15, it, this takes place during a blizzard. And what it allows the designer to do is to create this table such that some things will never happen or yeah, never happen in a blizzard, and others almost always happen in a blizzard. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I thought that was very clever. Um... The thing I noticed, though, I'm I don't want to be the the downer or the person that says, you know, the, all of the things I see wrong. I thought that was great, and I'm like, cool. So every encounter, especially the ones, the lower ones, which will always almost happen in a blizzard, um, will tell me if if not in a blizzard this, if in a blizzard this, and very mm-hmm. few of them did. Uh, so yeah. it then it just becomes either you as a dm have to figure out what it means to be in a blizzard uh that takes us back to these whole blizzard avalanche type things that i don't know that those were the best design for um for for allowing for a multitude of different stories to be told right right unless they had said here is what a default blizzard or avalanche is play with it which is really what you should do because it's too on off as a as an environmental yeah. situation. Yeah. So 
what that means is on the table, if the things that are one, two, or three are pretty much guaranteed to have a blizzard happening, whereas things up in the 18, 19, and 20 uh, are probably never going to have a blizzard attached to them. Uh, yeah, so peritons are 20, so they never are going to be found in a blizzard, and a yeti is a one, so it will always be found in a blizzard. Well, yep. okay, unless you roll another one. Well, if you roll a one, it says add one to the blizzard die. Oh, there you go. So yeah, yeah so it's it, actually if you if the if the dice are tied, um, you add oh, one okay. to the blizzard die, so it, it is a blizzard. So I love that cool mechanic. I just wish that each of the random encounters had said had made it cool or a big difference between having it in a blizzard versus not in a blizzard. Some of them do to, to their credit. Uh, a lot of them don't. We uh, have a cool uh, set though of random encounters uh, pun, not really intended there uh, going, going from very easy to uh, let's just say deadly. <laughs> yeah. Brutally deadly. Why don't you let's point out some of our favorite uh, of these wilderness encounters, things that we think maybe the DM should put in front of the characters without ever rolling a die. So, yeah, one of them we have to start with our Veaturus, the ancient white dragon, which has some very excellent Forgotten Realms lore here. This dragon, she flies around with a, um, a, a, a rider strapped to her. And if you get a close enough look, you realize this rider is dead. It's the wizard that used to um, kind of command her, but, but he died and she actually grew attached. So she acts as if he is still alive. Mm -hmm. um, and we can meet this. Uh, she is at one of the locations that you can later visit, um, which is a very, I think, neat, uh, though difficult to run encounter. Um, so you don't necessarily want to spoil it down. What it says here is, is that she is not really particularly looking to devour the party. Um, but it, this is one of those things where you wonder whether she's an ancient white dragon. So she's, you know, extremely tough. This is CR 20. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it, it's a, it's an interesting feature to have, right. To, and, and this is more of a visual in this place, but WizKids did make this enormous mini of her. So, uh, you know, and later she shows up. So it's, it's interesting. I think it's a fun thing to yeah. show your players and then have her fly off. Yeah, this is one of those things where you do want to uh, give a tease for this since, you know, later you probably will be presenting uh, this white worm as a uh, as something to deal with later but yeah. i i do love the fact that the rider's strapped into a saddle dead on her back and she talks to him yeah and, and a couple of folks of you know power score and and i think bbdm have looked into the lore of her story and of the wizard on it so you can look yeah. that up if you want and it's, it's yep. you know, some fun reads there another uh of these wilderness encounters are awakened beasts and in this case, it's just a, a, an awakened beast. So it's a, a regular native animal with intelligence of 10 and the ability to speak common and druidic. And it just sort of gives you, it gives you a table on what that uh, creature might be. And then uh, sort of do with it what you will. 
it's smart enough to stay out of the character's way. So it's just another way to introduce this concept of these uh, frost druids or other types of druids, even in the Dale awakening beasts to use as scouts, as allies, as spies. Um, but what I would do is I would kind of turn that whole concept on its head and people love awakened animals, right? They, Oh, look at the cute little bunny. They can talk, make it that, right? Make it that, make it this neat little thing that rides around on the Druid's back in the party and they're big friends. And the whole time they're spying on the party for some or horrible, evil thing. Uh, And so that just, it makes, it makes it fun for the players while that's happening and then it makes it fun for you as the dm when you introduce that conflict and you flip that switch and this sweet little bunny that has been talking to everyone and becomes sort of a mascot now becomes the the uh tool for the party's potential downfall right or you could even use it you know the, the druids can be of any alignment that uh, awaken these things so you could also use it as the get out of jail free card where the cute little bunny is tied to a good druid who comes to your rescue when you're about to be sure destroyed by enemies and so it could be the the excuse for how you avoid a tpk when things go really poorly right but leave that sense of mystery leave that wild card in your hand that you can play for different purposes and for different reasons down the line one thing I like about these encounters is some of them have a lot of depth to them and can actually lead to a big filler. And I like to have that in my back pocket as a DM when I'm looking at the time on the clock and how much I have planned for a gaming session, I might need a bigger thing to fill. Mm-hmm. And the Shardalan Berserkers are one of those. Yep. These, uh, when you defeat these Berserkers who are sort of crazed by the corrupted ice fragments that they have with them, um, you find a ring on them and if you take it, it transports you to the cave of these berserkers. So that's a great way to like extend in your time or throw in a surprising element. And this is not some small place. It has two white dragon wormlings. And what's really impressive about this location, and it is one of the locations that name later, um, it has a special magic and enchantment in this area that within this cave complex, the berserkers can't be brought down below one hit point unless you deal with the magical brazier in area Q5. Mm-hmm. And that requires dispel magic or stone shape, <laughs> which you may not have. Yes. Um, so there's a lot going on there, which can be a lot of fun, can be tough, but requires this sort of kids gloves uh, DM approach to figuring out how to telegraph this properly. So they're not just surrounded by berserkers that think they can take down. Um, or they may, you know, one thing that happens, you, you attack these Shardown Berserkers you encounter in the wilderness, you're still very hurt, you put on this ring, you teleport to this cave, and you can't kill the things there, and you're surrounded, and you TPK out. <laughs> yeah, that, that becomes rough. So what I, I, I would, if and when I run this, I'm going to change that. So, so when the person, when they put the ring on but are not attuned to it, only they go there. But when they take it off, they return to where they were. You then, can also have it. Go ahead. Then when they become attuned to it and they put it on, everyone within 100 feet goes. So that oh, sort cool. of, it gives a cool, quick look. And then you know you have something later that they might want to try. 
yeah. the players might want to try. Just that's another option is putting it on. You start to to like sense it and see that cave, but you can take it off and then it goes away. So you kind of get that feeling of something, you know, a little bit of a warning. We might yep. go somewhere. Yep. Especially if they don't have the means to actually defeat the creatures in the cave. Uh, you you need to give them an out. How about these you, insane chewingas? Yeah, I was just gonna say, uh, what did you think of, of the, the chewingas? I for, the the I think we're past the point now in in D D of of things like sane and insane. Um, yeah, we need to use new terminology. Um, yep. And I was going to say the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's a neat concept. The concept is these chwingas are nature spirits, right? They're, they're spirits of cold in this case. And so a blizzard would send them into a frenzy. That makes perfect sense. And I, lo- I love that dichotomy between uh, or the connection between the, the spirit and the nature. And if you use that going forward, you can do some cool things uh, with elementals that you meet later in the adventure, whether that are already there or that you put in, where they mimic the nature. Uh, In literature, it's called the objective correlative. Uh, I just don't like, I'm trying to avoid using sane and bad, you know, all those things. Yeah. Uh, But you know, it's I, I like the the encounter itself where this chewing if it's not a blizzard, it gives you a berry that heals you and and befriends you. If it's a blizzard, the chewing is in a frenzied state and therefore throws things at you and tries to steal from you. And and uh, you can have some fun with that. Yeah, it's very interesting. <laughs> um so what then we have oh. yeah I, I thought it was uh it was, it was fun I, I agree with you on on the the label of insanity or sanity is is uh it, it's too complicated in today's world and, and it carries too many connotations to be used and so it's better like you said to describe it as going into frenzy or being overcome by the blizzard um I think that's neat. I think it's a little hard guidance wise. I'd like a little more here around what characters can do to interact with them and, and to pick up on that they're one way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there isn't much here to say how players can read them or, or determine this about them. Um, and it would also be strange because you could have met Chewingas in various ways so far. And so, yeah, it's it's almost like we came up with a new thought, but as long as you navigate that, I think this is a fun way to shake things up. And, and if you're a DM that doesn't like say cute things, mm-hmm. it is important. And I would say, I normally am not super into cute things, but I have seen that throwing in cute things changes your, you know, and gives you this momentary different feel to your session. Yep. That is awesome for play. Uh, and so, and, and usually there's someone at the table, if not several people that will really enjoy interacting with something that's cute and it just changes your brain pattern of what you're all doing and the experience you're having. And then you can go back to the, whatever it is, you know, the, 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 the murder or the horror or whatever the other aspects are. Um, it's good to, to swap that out periodically. And so that I like that this exists for that reason. Yeah. Did you have other, uh, 
encounters that you wanted to highlight? <laughs> I mean, frost giant riding a mammoth. Yeah. So first of all, one of my favorite old time DDM miniatures is a frost giant riding a mammoth. It's unbelievable. Um, and I like that in this and in other encounters, negotiation is possible. Um, they don't always give you the guidance for what to do around that, but, um, but it, it's, it's, I like that there's that option. Um, Knowles coming from Cackling Chasm, that's another one that you can use to trigger a larger encounter behind it. Um, how do you feel about the Goliaths, the Goliath party or the Goliath werebear? Yeah, I, I thought it was fine. Um, I think it tells a, a good story of, of what's happening in Icewind Dale. Um, and I would go with the more passive, friendly Goliaths um, just to give a little bit of role-playing opportunity as opposed yeah. to the ones that are indifferent or... Um... Oh, going back to the Knowles, though, I, I would have rather had, rather than rumors or quests, I would have rather had these random encounters actually lead to the, the, the bigger quests because um, they seem to be a better, better introduction to what happens at these places than, than the actual rumors or quests themselves. Yeah, it, it, especially when you look at how Cackling Chasm, the location is described, there is a storyline there of how the main knoll uh, led them here from other lands. And then this horrible rhyme takes place and there is no food. And so they're questioning the leader and actually looking for someone to take down the leader. And so mm -hmm. running into this party of gnolls, they might at first attack you, but then might also make peace with you. Right. Um, and, and kind of even want them to follow them or hire them or, you know, there are a lot of opportunities here and that's kind of cool. Yeah. Because, I agree with you. This is a great way to go to that place. Right. Because if you, if you use the, the rumor, you're just like, oh, okay, rumor, there's the, there are these gnolls. All right, let's go fight the gnolls. But then randomly you run into the Goliaths who actually will, might send you on a different quest. So, right. you, you know, if you're going to have these threads, then go with the threads. Don't, don't. Yeah. Uh, well, and that's what I'd say is that, you know, the best time to have someone run into something like the Knolls or the Goliaths that are going to take you to a place is on the way back home. Yep. Right. So you accomplish your quest and on the way back this, you don't even need to go home because, Hey, look, here's this other quest. And that can take us, it feels more natural, right? You know, we, were, mm -hmm. we had nothing to do. We're going to go back to town and see what else there is to do. Oh, but wait, now we're interacting with someone who takes us somewhere. Yep. Uh, the Goliaths, I'm sorry, going back to the Goliaths. Yeah. I, I, I like the idea that they're very competitive and it's sort of their socialization is to let's play a game. Of course, the game usually has to do with punching each other in the head, but I guess you know, that's my family's also a way of greeting each other. So uh, knock each I, other off rocks. I, I, I feel, yeah, I feel quite at home. Uh, yeah, we'll get into the Goliaths in more detail later, but there is a game called Goatball, which yep. uh, and the tale of two clans that misremember how a particular match went, which feels ripped off completely, and this is not necessarily a bad thing, from uh, Avatar The Last Airbender and the two Earth tribes they meet at one point there. Yeah. Uh, this is that same kind of storyline, and it's and I think can can be very enjoyable, but 
it's always difficult when you have a group of creatures who kind of their, their thing is that they don't want to talk with you. Mm-hmm. That's always a little hard. And so, yeah, I would say you're right. And go with the ones that want to talk to you more first. And then it can be fun to have that contrast of encountering a group that doesn't want to deal with you. Oh, they're from the other place. We'd heard about those. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, then we have a few sort of standard random encounters. You have the ice troll. Okay. What do you do with the ice troll? You fight the ice troll. Uh, you have, <laughs> You have the kobolds. Well, can I say that the ice troll, it's, I find it very, it's so standard and, and I'd say even kind of lackluster, but ice trolls themselves have this cool thing about their heart. Oh yeah. Yep. And, and, you can, and you, yeah, you can hear a rumor that it, you want to eat the ice troll heart, uh, the whole thing, if you find it, because it will give yeah. you resistance to cold. Yeah. And that's what that makes this more interesting is if yep. you can, throw that in there yeah and then you have them the characters hunting ice trolls because there's a chance that they might be able to gain cold resistance uh yeah and then you know there's typical cobalt encounter where it can either be a fight or uh you they can parlay with them and and you know help them out that's cool uh the orcs of the many arrows tribe Uh, yeah i i I struggled with this one. I kind of didn't even want to talk about it, but yeah, yeah. Like, what do we? It's like they're trying to address that orcs are not one thing. But... Yeah, it's it's so hard. It's so hard. The, the history of the game that we're trying to shed, where you know orcs are just the bad guys, and and then we make progress to to get them to drop you know, player character traits and, and make them more positive. And, and then you come across something like this, where it's just these sort of the orcs want to kill you and eat you. Yeah, it's, it's like this encounters with an orc war chief who leads a hunting party that includes an orc eye of Grimsh, six orcs and a half over painted in dry blood on the eye of Grimsh's shield is the symbol of many orcs tribe, a crude skull impaled by three arrows, but you can reason with them. Right. Mm. Yeah, and this is where yeah. if if what you want to do is have an encounter that shows orcs as being more than brutal, then that random encounter must show that, right? right? They are on the edge of a precipice. One of the member has fallen, and they're trying to help that one up. You yeah. come across the scene. Mm-hmm. They look to you. You look at them. It's a sort of and and now we can talk, right? Now we can you know give us a help. We'll help you. Hey, we have this information, this quest lead, whatever. That's how you breathe some life into it, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Or they're playing a game, you know, competing against one another, and they invite you to join. And things can go poorly or well, depending on how that goes. Or it's something yeah. different that creates an interaction that isn't. Yeah. Just pushing and, towards combat. and and what what even tweaked me a little more was they use many arrows tribe, which was sort of the one of the even in the old lore one of the places where the orcs were reasonable, and they they did go from sort of a this stereotypical bad guy persona to more civilized and more peaceful and it began yeah. moving in that direction using that tribe. So to see it step back and use that name was even more disheartening to me. And I don't know if that was wizards, if that was specifically R.I. Salvatore that, that, you know, Salvatore wrote the story of how 
King Obold and Drizzt sort of, uh, he becomes an, an analog for Drizzt, but on the orc side, right? They've been murdering all these people, taking over lands, sieging right. against different human lands. And then Drizzt finds this guy that can be reasoned with. And it's sort of like, oh, I'm the solitary orc, just like Drizzt was the solitary good drow. And these two good singular people can sort of achieve change. It's, it's more intricate than that, but, but there is a lot of that to it, which is really not how you save the situation to say one dark drow is good, one orc is good. Um, and, and then unfortunately what happened is the storyline goes back to a lot of the orcs, yeah. again, slaughtering people around them. And, and I think that's sort of where the current state is historically is that the many arrows are you know only in some places have a tenuous alliance i could be wrong on that but they did go back and forth right. and so you know and now we're trying to say well really it's that these are varied peoples and and, and you find a variety inside of varied peoples and so uh, that we should not make this assumption but this encounter just it doesn't do that right it doesn't quite yeah. get you there yeah I, lo- I love your idea though of having them trying to save one of their own who's fallen or uh, some in some way to to let the characters at least have the option in their own minds of a peaceful resolution, uh, but you yeah. do need that because otherwise, with a lot of parties, if you just present these <laughs> orcs painted in blood, what are they going to do? They're, yeah. they're going to roll initiative, and that's that's all. That's as far as the talking is going to go. Yeah. Place place uh, place these kinds of foes or creatures in situations that underscore human elements that players can identify with. And when that happens, then we will react that way. Yep. Good call. And the, uh, the other one I wanted to point out was the Paritans, mm-hmm. which, which are a cool monster. Uh, this will almost never happen in a blizzard because they are the last ones on the list. But they, uh, the, the lore of the Paritan is really cool to me. Uh, because it's so kind of horrifying nature's red in tooth and claw. Uh, Peritons can only mate if the uh, one of the pair eats a heart of a humanoid. And they, uh, this pair are out looking to mate. So look out. And there's a rumor uh, that uh, you can hear elsewhere in the adventure that says, if you see uh, Peritons, bury yourself in the snow and hope they don't find you. Uh, so, and, and the, I mean, they're only CR2 each, so it's not like it's an impossible combat. Um, right. But it. So it, they fly. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Uh, so I just, a Periton has always been sort of one of my favorite D&D type things. Uh, so I, I like that. Yeah, this is, it's very cool. It's, it's neat. I, in a Periton encounter, you know, one thing that you could think about, especially because this is supposed to have a sort of horror theme to it at times, is have these Peritons circle you for a while, then seem to go away, then you spot them in the distance, and you just know they're following, and then have a fight. Yep. And you know they're somewhere out there, right? And maybe that could be like some, almost like a skill challenge to try to evade them because they sense, they smell the blood, they're gonna come for you and, and can, you know, can, or can you get to a favorable situation to defend against them? And then you run that Periton encounter. Right. That'd or, be beautiful. or if you have an encounter with the gnolls or with the kobolds 
that that goes south and turns into a combat they the Puritans can come down and take care of the business at hand with the dead you know Noel rather than bothering with the humans and sure. the, the party can watch it happen yeah yeah that'd and, be cool and realize okay that the, they're out there uh, mm-hmm. so yeah uh can we just say snowy owlbear i don't know what happened here we get this art which a lot of people have commented on it was sort of cute looking owlbear that's way more fluffy than usual and it almost looks like it's dragging its butt on the carpet the way my dog does Uh, and we tell him to stop immediately uh but all it is is a normal owlbear stat block plus a 30 foot swim speed yep that's a missed opportunity yeah i I don't need another stat block that's the same monster with a swim speed like you can just tell me it has a swim speed yeah yeah so but what would be cool is a snowy owlbear that has something cool and new about it i would have liked that Right, or or had a story element to it, not even a mechanical element. Although a mechanical element would be preferable to to just a regular owlbear. Uh, so yeah. The last thing I'd say is the yeti. They're labeled so you can roll to see what kind of yeti you come up with. Like maybe it's just normal yeti, or one abominable yeti, or yeti type, uh, and that's fun because you can tell different stories of that. But they say hard for abominable yeti. This is CR9, and the Yeti can surprise you and are almost always in a blizzard. And CR9 with surprising could be very painful, so just yeah. be aware of that. Yeah, it's a, that's true. So those were the wilderness encounters. Uh, there were more, but we didn't call every single one out. Uh, but that is a good place to end this uh, session. So we can, next session, get into each of these quests individually. Uh, Anything else to say, Teos, before we wrap up? No, I think that's great. I mean, there's a lot here, super sandboxy. But uh, again, you know, we'll look next time at how we can uh, try to do a little more narrative here. Mm -hmm. How to tame this wild beast. Tame the wild beast. (sighs) So thank you so much for listening. Thank you to our patrons out there who uh, give us a little bit of money each month to keep the lights on. Um, Thanks to all our listeners. Um, If you like the show, please consider spreading the news on your social media accounts. Uh, We appreciate that. If you would like to become a patron, you can go to patreon.com slash MMP. Teos, where can people find you on social media? You can find me at AlphaStream on Twitter and my blog, alphastream.org. You can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin, or you can go to the forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com to leave your comments on our show. Down with D&D is a Misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. So, Mr. Teos, what are we going to do now? Let's go kill some monsters in a... Oh, in a blizzard. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D and D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D and D? Down with D and D. Yeah, you know me. You down with D and D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D and D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D and D? But not an avalanche. <laughs> no. <laughs>